0: Beloved congregation, it's been a while since we have um, considered the Heidelberg Catechism, so turn with me for just a moment by way of introduction to Lord's Day 7. Lord's Day 7, on page 34 in the back of your Psalter. Lord's Day 7. I want to focus briefly a moment on question number 22. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? Because Lord's Day 7 makes it very clear that the one and only mediator that is introduced to us in Lord's Days 5 and 6, namely our Lord Jesus Christ, who is that fully qualified mediator, who is very God and very man, that in order to be the beneficiary of what he has accomplished, we need to believe on him. Because it is only by faith that we become the recipient of what Christ has accomplished. And then after expounding for us what true faith is, then the question is asked, what is then necessary for a Christian to believe? And the answer is, all things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic or universal undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. And then, of course, we have the Apostolic Creed, which we also regularly read here. That Apostolic Creed, which is this profound summary of the Christian faith, which addresses all the essential truths of the Christian faith. And the question then was asked in uh, Lord's Day 8 how are these articles then divided? It says into three parts the first is of God the Father and our creation, the second of God the Son and our redemption, the third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Beautifully stating that ultimately the Apostles' Creed is about the triune God. As I explained to you before, It began with a simple repetition of the baptismal formula, which Christ gave to His disciples before He ascended, to go and to baptize the nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But very quickly, it became necessary, because of errors that were creeping in, to unpack this, especially when it came to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, And so thus far, we have focused on what that apostolic creed confesses about God the Father. We did so by way of Lord's Day 9 and Lord's Day 10. And which Lord's Day 9, of course, beautifully, beautifully stated. Very Christ-centered when it said that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by His eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ, His Son, my God and my Father. Beautifully, beautifully setting before us the, the essence of the fatherhood of God as it is confessed in the Apostles' Creed. And Then, of course, we consider together The Doctrine of God's Providence, that brings us now to Lord's Day 11. And you can see that we have now a heading that tells us that we will now begin to address what the Apostles' Creed confesses about God the Son. And again, if you want to jot this down, you can check this yourself at home. In Lord's Days 11 and 12, we're going to focus on the names of the Saviour. The Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Lord's Days 13 and 14, we're going to focus on the natures of Christ. His divine nature as the eternal, only begotten Son of God, and as the one who in the fullness of time became man, His incarnation. And then in Lord's Days 15 through 19, we deal with what we call the states of the mediator, those That's a legal word, the the legal state of his humiliation and the state of his exaltation. And so from Lord's Day 11 to Lord's Day 19, comprehensively deals with what is confessed in the Apostles' Creed in the second article all the way down to the ninth article. And then the remainder of the creed deals with God, the Holy Ghost. So let's read Lord's Day 11. Lord's Day 11. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? The answer, because He saveth us and delivereth us from our sins, and likewise because we ought not to seek. Neither can find salvation in any other. Question 30. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? The answer is they do not. For though they boast of Him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior or that they, who by a true faith receive this savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation and so we will speak tonight very simply about jesus as the savior of sinners first of all a savior who is the son of god that is profoundly significant that we first grasp that Because that's how the question is phrased. Why is the Son of God called Jesus that is a Savior? Why is God the Father not the Savior? Why is the Holy Spirit not the Savior? Why is it God the Son who is called Jesus that is Savior? So that's the first point, a Savior who is the Son of God. Secondly, a Savior who saves us from sin. It's so simply stated, and yet so profoundly true, who saves from sin. And I'm sure some of our older children know that when the angel appeared to Joseph, he told Joseph what the name of this child would be, Jesus, for he saves, he will save his people from their sins. So that's what he does. He is the Son of God. He saves from sin. And thirdly, a Savior who is a complete Savior. Not a half Savior, but a complete Savior. Because the answer says it very, very plainly. One of those two, one of those two options has to be true. Either He is not a complete Savior, or if He is, then by faith we must put all of our trust in Him alone for everything that pertains to our salvation. So Jesus, the Savior of sinners. A Savior who is the Son of God, a Savior who saves from sin, and a Savior who is a complete Savior. So the very way this question is phrased compels us, first of all, again, to focus on God's glorious triune being. Because we will never understand what that means, that He, as the Son of God, has come into the world to be the Savior of sinners. And as I've tried to explain to you before and hope to do many more times, we need to understand the unique place of God's Son within that glorious triune being. We have to remember that God's triune being is a special, wonderful, amazing love relationship between the Father and His Son, and the Son and the Father, who are bound together in the bonds of love in the very person of the Holy Spirit. But one thing is very clear from God's Word, that in God's sovereign purposes... God has purposed that His Son would eternally have the preeminence. That's very clearly stated for us, for instance, in Colossians 1. It has pleased the Father that He should have the preeminence. Because Colossians also tells us, as you know, that God has done everything Ultimately, for one purpose, and that is to proclaim, to promote the everlasting glory of His only begotten Son. And why His Son? Because His Son is the full and glorious revelation of Himself. It is the Son in whom the Father beholds the glory of His very own person. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 1, that all things have been made by the Son, and they have been made for the Son. So, God's overarching goal, also in the future, His overarching goal is to promote the everlasting glory of His only begotten Son. And we also need to understand something else that's significant. And that is, that is, in the person of the Son, not only does God reveal Himself, but it's very clear that in the person of the Son, it pleases God to establish a relationship with a creature that has been created in the image of His Son. That's what makes man so unique. And so we know from Genesis 1... That God had this holy dialogue within the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. And as we compare scripture with scripture, ultimately that means that God purposed to create a creature, man, who would bear the image of his only begotten Son, a creature with whom God the Creator could enter into a special love relationship, a father-child relationship. And all of that He does by means of His Son. And so we must understand, congregation, that it is in the person of the Son that God deals with man. God has eternally generated His Son so that in the fullness of time, in His Son, He could enter into a love relationship with a creature that bears the image of His Son. But we know that as a result of the fall, man has lost that image. Now the amazing thing is that the gospel unveils to us that God has eternally purposed that through His Son He would bring fallen sinners back to Himself. Through His Son He would restore that broken relationship. And that's why it is in the person of the Son that God accomplishes the marvelous work of redemption because of His unique role within the divine trinity. All of God's dealings with man are always by means of His Son. And that's what's emphasized here in this question. Why is the Son of God called Jesus that is a Savior And we can only marvel, congregation, that God has purposed through His Son to bring rebellious sons and daughters back to Himself. And the Bible unveils to us, that in order for that to be accomplished, God's eternal Son not only had to come into this world in the fullness of time, but that God's eternal Son, who is the eternal object of His Father's love, that that Son had to be subjected to the accursed cross. Oh, what a mystery there is in that. To know that in all that the Father does, He aims for the glory of His Son, and yet that He would subject His only begotten Son to the accursed cross. That that Son was nailed to that cross. That that son was forsaken by his father. And that the outcome of all of that, the outcome of his redeeming work, the outcome of that sacrifice which he made on the accursed cross, that the outcome of that marvelous work of redemption would be the everlasting glory of the father's only begotten son, And Jesus was so conscious of this. That's why in that remarkable prayer, the high priestly prayer of John 17, at the very beginning, what does Christ say? What is his petition? He says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world. was." And He said this. Jesus said this on the eve of His crucifixion. He said this knowing what was coming the next day. He said this knowing that this petition could not be answered unless He would accomplish that work for which He came into the world. He knew that unless he would empty the cup of his father's wrath, unless he would willingly surrender himself to be nailed to the accursed cross, that unless he, on behalf of his children, would descend into hell itself, God's sovereign good pleasure could not be accomplished. And so we can say that Christ's appointment in the fullness of time when the eternal Son of God became the Son of Man, that the primary purpose of that appointment was His glory, His everlasting glory. And we need to realize that as believers, ultimately God has redeemed us for the glory of His Son. That is God's overarching goal. That is God's overarching objective. And the secondary purpose of that divine appointment for the Son to become the Son of Man, the fullness of time, is the complete salvation of all who are chosen in Him. Open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, where John expresses this so clearly and so remarkably. First John 4, verses 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him and then... A bit further on, it says, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so that is the wonder. That is the wonder of God's good pleasure. That is the wonder of the gospel, the glad tidings of the gospel. That the eternal Son of the Father became the Son of Man. That God was manifest in the flesh. That He, the eternal Son of God, became our Emmanuel. That wonderful name, Emmanuel, God with us. So that through the Son, and through what He accomplished, God could again achieve what He originally set out to do. And that through His Son, He could bring human beings, sons and daughters of Adam, bring back to himself into an everlasting love relationship. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, that's another 3, verse 16 verse in the Bible. John 3, verse 16, of course, beautifully articulates that good pleasure that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him would not perish. But in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 the Apostle says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God manifested in the flesh. God the Son becoming the Son of Man so that in Him, God and man could be reunited. That's the wonder of it. God and man reunited in Him. That's, that's one of the wonderful truths about that blessed union. And so Christ did not merely become a man so that He could suffer and die and take our place. But more than that, in Him, God has found a way where He can be reconnected, if you will, where He can be reunited to sons and daughters of Adam in a way that can never be broken again, a bond that will endure forever. And now it is that Son of God who is given that special name of Jesus. And I know our boys and girls know Bible history well enough that that came from heaven itself. That wasn't Joseph and Mary's idea to call their baby Jesus. No, when the angel appeared to Mary in Luke 1, he specifically told Mary that the name of that child that she was carrying under her heart, that that child would be called Jesus. And then when the angel also appeared to Joseph, Joseph who thought that his wife had been unfaithful, ready to quietly divorce herself from him divorce himself from her then that same angel came to him and told joseph that the name of that child would be jesus and then actually explained to joseph why the name of that savior would be jesus for he will save his people from their sins and then what jesus is presented in the temple when he is circumcised, the scriptures specifically tell us that the name of Jesus was given to him. A congregation, ever since then, that name has been a precious name throughout the history of this world that has followed. That precious name, that simple name, it was, it was not a unique name in that sense. It was a Jewish name. We have a couple people in the Old Testament who had that name. Because Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Jeshua. And so we have a Jeshua or Joshua. Who was an eminent type of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come. And we have also a Jeshua, the high priest in the book of Zechariah both of these men foreshadowed the one who would come in the fullness of time and it is a very beautiful name it's a very simple name and yet the meaning of it is so extremely profound because it literally means jehovah saves what a simple statement subject and a verb jehovah saves and yet we can say that that statement that name is literally the gospel in miniature it's the gospel in, in its most compact form because that name tells us that this whole work of redemption this whole plan of redemption to save sinners has its origin in the eternal heart of god salvation is god's idea It originates with him but then the word saves and it's again in Greek it's a very rich word to save means to completely make whole to completely restore and so Jehovah saves of course that implies something it implies that we are lost It implies that we are utterly lost. We are completely lost. We are hopelessly lost. That our only hope is in this Jehovah. The only hope for fallen sons and daughters of Adam is that Jehovah saves. And that's exactly the reason why He sent His Son into the world. In order to save sinners... Not only to deliver us from something, to deliver us from the greatest evil, which is sin, but also to restore us unto something. Namely, that we, through Him, that we fallen sinners, that we might again become the sons and daughters of the living God. And of course, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Joshua the high priest... They bore that name very imperfectly. They were but a faint reflection. But Jesus bears that name in absolute harmony with who he is and what he came to do. It's it's significant, is it not, that the angel said to Joseph, His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not from hell, not from damnation, all of which is true. But that's not the real issue. Hell and damnation are but the wretched consequences of our sinnership. If we die as we've been born, that will be our future. And so when Jesus saves sinners, which is why he came, when he saves sinners, he does save his people from hell and damnation. But that's not the focus of what the angel said to Joseph. Now, his name will be Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. Because that's the issue. That's the problem. That is what separates God from man sin it's a little word boys and girls three letters sin but it's without a doubt it is the most ugly and vilest word in the english language sin sometimes i'm afraid and i include myself sometimes i'm afraid that we have grown far too accustomed to that word How often do we stop and consider what sin is? How often do we stop and consider how ugly sin is? How ugly your sin is? How ugly my sin is? Sin is so ugly. Sin is so vile in the sight of God. That the only way that redemption could be accomplished... Is that he gave his only begotten Son, his eternal Son, the Son of his love, and would subject him to his judgment upon sin in order that through his sacrifice the barrier between God and man could be removed? That's precisely what Christ accomplished. That's why it was such a sacred moment. When in the temple at the time of the evening sacrifice, you can imagine what must have gone to the mind of that priest who was performing his duty at the ninth hour. And when suddenly that massive veil is rent into, to demonstrate that the wall of separation between God and man had been removed as a result of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when the holy spirit works savingly in the hearts of sinners to make room for this savior because we all need this jesus we all need this savior we must be saved by his name we've just read from acts 4 but the sad truth is that by nature we are ignorant of that we are blind to that reality blind to who we really are in the sight of God when the spirit begins to deal with us when he has his when his objective is to make me realize my need of this savior to make room for this savior he will convince me not just of the fact that I'm hell bound but he will convince me of my sin he will make Real to me what that means to be a sinner. What it means to have offended God. To have despised His love. The Spirit will, conv- will convict us of the ugliness and of the vileness of sin. In order to bring us to the feet of this Jesus. In order to so deal with us. That that simple name Jesus that is often used so flippantly and so casually that that name Jesus will become so very precious to my soul when I realize that in that name lies my hope, that that name embodies the only way in which I can again be reconciled with God. His name is Jesus because He saves us and delivers us from our sins. Let me just briefly highlight the various aspects of sin from which Jesus saves His children. First of all, He saves us from the guilt of sin. What does that mean, the guilt of sin? What does it mean to be guilty? So, when you've done something wrong, boys and girls, and your mom or dad says, you are guilty. Well, that means that you deserve to be punished for what you have done. When a judge in the court declares a defendant to be guilty, that means punishment will follow. And so because we are sinners, we are transgressors of God's law, because by our sins we have offended our Maker so profoundly and deeply, We are guilty. That means we deserve to be punished as transgressors of the law. So Christ, he took that guilt upon himself as our mediator, as our substitute. He was treated on Calvary's cross, treated as the guilty one. And as our substitute, he took all of that upon him. And he endured the full punishment stipulated by God Himself in order to deliver us from the guilt of our sin. And so, dear, dear child of God, on Calvary's cross, though He was innocent, in your place, He paid the penalty. He paid the penalty in full. And so He, in a sense, He received what He did not deserve at all, because he was holy, harmless, sinless, undefiled, in order that you and I could receive the opposite of what we deserve. And because of what Jesus has done, it is that Paul could say so boldly in Romans 8, 34, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Paul is saying, if there's anyone who has a right to condemn us, it is God. But God, who is the judge of all the earth, will not condemn those who by grace have put their trust in this Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins, from the guilt of sin, But He also came to save us from the pollution of sin. Sin not only renders us guilty. Remember, boys and girls, I used that in the past. Sin also makes us filthy. It makes us guilty and filthy. Try to remember those two words, guilty and filthy. Sin pollutes us. Sin makes us utterly vile. Utterly vile in the sight of God. And there is no way that a holy God can have a relationship with a vile and polluted sinner unless that pollution is removed. And again, dear child of God, that's what Jesus has done for you. He gave himself so that you could also be cleansed from the pollution of sin. The beautiful words of 1 John 1 verse 7, so familiar to all of us. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, again, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Guilt of sin, the pollution of sin, but also the power and the dominion of sin. Because not only are we transgressors of God's law by nature, but we we live in utter bondage to sin. Sin has dominion over us by nature. And so in order to be saved, we need to to be delivered from the power and dominion of sin as well. That's the marvelous work of Christ. The marvelous outcome of His saving work as Jesus is that we are set free from the power and dominion of sin. That's what happens in the new birth, which flows out of the work that Jesus has done the power of sin, that stranglehold that sin has on us by nature, that stranglehold is broken. Oh, as believers, we will still deal with sin until our last breath. But it will never have dominion over us again. Paul, Paul writes in Romans 6:14: For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So Jesus saves. From the guilt of sin, the pollution of sin, the power and dominion of sin, and the ultimate consequences of sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is to be eternally separated from God. To eternally be subject to His wrath. That's the destiny of all who live and die in their sins. And dear believer, that would have been your destiny. Had it not that Christ came in the fullness of time to be your Savior. To save you from your sins. To save you from the consequences of your sin. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul therefore again boldly exalts, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, dear believer, your Savior's name is Jesus. And that means He will save you to the uttermost. He will save you completely. Not only are you now already experiencing the benefits of what He has accomplished, but His work will be complete. And so also for us, the day of death is coming. But for the believer, death is no longer a judgment. For the believer, death is his final deliverance from the body of this death. And yet sometimes for God's children, the prospect of death can fill them with fear. It's rightly called the last enemy. But I want to encourage you tonight that your Savior who has saved your soul, your Savior who has become precious to you, your Savior to whom you have been drawn, your Savior who has become your only refuge, that Savior will do a complete work. He will save you to the uttermost. And so when the moment comes, that you too will breathe your last breath. He will be there. And He will carry you home. Because He is a Savior who will not lose those for whom He gave His life. He is a Savior who saves to the uttermost, who will guide us even until death. And that's why we read Acts 4. That's why Peter stood up boldly. The same coward who had denied his master three times. That man is now filled with the Holy Ghost. And he boldly proclaims that name to the Sanhedrin. Boldly he declares to them, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men. Whereby we must Be saved. Oh, my dear congregation, is this Jesus your Savior? Have you taken refuge to this Christ? Has this Christ become the only solution for your guilty, polluted soul? Has His name become to you More than just a name of five letters, has his name become for you that only name given under heaven? Do you understand what that means when the poet says, Give me, give me this Jesus, or else I die, else I perish? For that's how the Holy Spirit works. He restlessly works in the hearts of His children to make sure that that name becomes the only name, that that name becomes a name above every other name, the name of Jesus. Then we have our final point, which negatively emphasizes what a complete Savior He is. Do such them believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints themselves or anywhere else? They do not. For though they boast of Him in words, yet in deeds they deny the only Deliverer and Savior. Now, of course, they wrote this in the context of having come out of Roman Catholicism. And they wrote this because they... They they were so convinced that that was the grievous error of Roman Catholicism. Because in Roman Catholicism, though they do not deny that there is a Jesus, but Jesus alone is not enough. To what what Jesus has done have have to be added our own works. The merits of the saints. And so the, the reformers understood profoundly how grievously the biblical gospel of Jesus alone had been corrupted in Roman Catholicism. That's why they say, even though they may boast of him in words, that still today, you can listen to a speech of the Pope and he will mention the name of Jesus. Yet by their very system until this day, by their whole system that surrounds the Mass, the whole doctrine of good works, the saints, Mary, and you name it, it's so obvious that it's not Jesus only. And that's why one of the solas of the Reformation, sola is the Latin word that means only. Not only grace alone, faith alone, but Christ alone. Because it says either Jesus is not a complete Savior, and if that's true... That means he would have died in vain. Either he is not a complete Savior, or that they, who by a true faith receive this Savior, must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. It's one or the other. But let's not be too hasty, congregation, in looking to Roman Catholicism. Because ultimately... We all have that tendency. Even as believers, we still have that tendency that we secretly rely on something other than Jesus only. And it's a lifelong lesson that the Spirit of God teaches God's children over and over again that it is Jesus alone. So what do we do? Whether we Realize it or not, but we, we can so quickly rely on how we feel at the moment, on our emotions. And we foolishly think that when we are emotionally engaged, when our heart is tender, that we are more acceptable to God as when we cannot produce a single tear. And so we're so inclined to rest in what we have experienced rather than resting in Christ alone. That's why the Holy Spirit, who is so jealous of the honor of Jesus, who is so absolutely committed to make sure that that name is and remains for us the only name given under heaven, He will take away all of those crutches. And if we secretly try, if we secretly find our joy and we find our comfort in our tears and our emotions, he'll take it away. He'll take it away to teach us to trust in Christ alone with a naked faith, with nothing to lean upon, nothing to rest in, except Jesus only. Because they, who by a true faith receive this Savior, must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. It's painful when the Spirit also, in, in educating us spiritually, in causing us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, when He takes all that away from us as a foundation. In order to teach us. But it's in that way that we find true rest for our souls. Because our feelings, and I go by myself, our feelings are so unreliable. They are so fickle. One moment we weep, the next moment we don't. One moment our heart feels warm, the next moment it feels cold. One moment our, we are engaged, the next moment we are sluggish. And we go up and down. What a blessing it is if we learn not to rely upon that as an indicator of who we are before God. And how often are we not guilty, at least I am, that when we're on our knees, that somehow we still think we have to negotiate with God. That somehow we think that our frame of mind makes us acceptable to God. We have to learn, and we have to learn it again. And so if if God is taking that away from you, it's a blessing. Because the Spirit of God wants you to rest in Jesus only. The Spirit of God wants to bring us to the place where we can wholeheartedly say with Asaph in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. And when Jesus said to Peter, will you also go away? When so many had left, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And So dear believer, is it Jesus only for you? Jesus Only. They who by true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. And are there still here who do not yet know him, who know of him, but who have never taken refuge to him? Oh, that I may proclaim to you that Jesus has come to save sinners from their sins. And that that Savior is so willing and so ready to receive you. A Savior that we may offer to you freely, without money and without price. A Savior who still extends the call of the gospel, Oh, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A Savior who has promised that whoever comes to Him shall in no wise be cast out. A Savior who is willing to receive you now at this very moment. A Savior who declares to us in His Word, now sinner, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. A Savior who is so attuned to sinners crying out to him, O son of David, have mercy on us. A Savior who stopped. He was on his way to Jerusalem and who heard the cry of Bartimaeus. He stopped. He said, bring that man to me. A Savior who felt the touch of a woman who touched the hem of his garment. Oh, that Savior is so attuned to sinners coming to him And crying out to him, O son of David, have mercy upon me. Because my dear friend, boys and girls, there is no other name given under heaven whereby you must be saved. Only through him can you be reconciled with God. Only through him can you be delivered from sin and all of its consequences. Only through him Can you become a child of the living God? And so this answer says it very simply. Jesus is either everything or he's nothing. And what is he to you, congregation, boys and girls? What is this Jesus to you? And so let's hear this wonderful statement that the Apostle Paul makes. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Our faithful God and Father, in the name of this precious Jesus, we come to Thee once more. And Lord, Thy Word has come to us today in this evening hour. Many of us, no doubt, have heard this before, and yet we need to hear it over and over again. And so we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst continue to work in our hearts and souls to teach us who this Jesus is, to teach us more and more that our salvation is to be found in him alone, that he will truly be for us, that one and only name. Oh, if there are any among us who have never yet come to this Christ, oh, that they would give heed to that faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the very chief. And so, Lord, bless thy word that has gone forth today. Go with us in this coming week keep us safely. We pray that none of us would die unprepared and unexpectedly Then to meet that same Jesus who now proffers peace and pardon to meet Him as our judge. And so, Lord, we pray, therefore, that we would redeem our time, that we would seek Thee while Thou art yet to be found. And if we may truly profess That our only hope is in this precious Christ. Oh, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of this Jesus. That we would increasingly understand that it is Jesus and Jesus only. We ask it in his name. Amen.